Hello and welcome to the Well Women Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Laura, naturopathic doctor. Today I have an exciting episode because I am talking to my colleague and friend, Dr. Michelle O'Neill, and we are talking about everything you need to know about the thyroid gland. Uh, So Dr. Michelle's practice experience includes two years at a conventional walk-in clinic in Mississauga, working as part of a multidisciplinary team alongside medical doctors, chiropractors, and massage therapists. From there, she spent two years in private practice in Collingwood and sat as a member of the Collingwood General and Marine Hospital Public Health Education Committee. She then moved to Barrie, where she spent six years at the Wolbeck Health Center with a wonderful team of professionals. Dr. Michelle is the owner of Elements Naturopathic and Wellness Center in Barrie, a small and intimate clinic that focuses on health, prevention, and wellness. Dr. Michelle enjoys a diverse practice, has a special interest in hormonal imbalances, depression, anxiety, digestive complaints, and autoimmune conditions. Dr. Michelle is also an accomplished public speaker, lecturing for a variety of groups, as well as having appeared on numerous television and radio shows across Canada. In addition to being registered as a naturopathic doctor in Ontario, Dr. Michelle has completed her prescribing and therapeutics course, allowing for prescription of desiccated thyroid, as well as bioidentical progesterone and estrogen creams. Hi, Dr. Michelle. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Dr. Laura. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Holding up. Holding up. (laughs) So let's just get into the thyroid. A lot of people don't even know what the thyroid is and what it does, to say the least. So first, let's just talk about that. Uh, How someone would know if they have an issue with theirs, how kind of what it is, what it does. Give us a, a rundown. Okay. So your thyroid's a little butterfly shaped gland that sits right in the front of your throat, right where your Adam's apple would be. And it creates, it produces thyroid hormone, uh, T4, which has to get converted into T3 to be active in the body. And that T3 basically runs the basal metabolic rate of almost every cell that we have. So it almost is, it's like um, an accelerator for all of the metabolic processes that happen in our cells. So when people have like a low thyroid function, you start to see a lot of those metabolic processes slow which is what explains a lot of the symptoms that we see in hypothyroid because literally the cells are not firing um, on all cylinders. They're not, they're not working as hard and as efficiently as they could be because of the lack of thyroid hormone. Okay. And so when we're looking at the thyroid, what type of, what type of symptoms would someone have if they were looking for an underactive versus an overactive? Okay. So underactive thyroid, hypothyroidism, you're going to see fatigue, non-restful sleep, hair loss, weight gain, constipation, dry skin. Um, I mean, the, the list goes on and on, but it's literally as though everything is kind of slowing. That's what it feels like. Versus somebody who is hyperthyroid, who has an overactive thyroid condition, um, you'll see weight loss, you'll see sweating, heart palpitations, um, oily skin, it, loose stool. So they're, they're, they're polar opposites in their, in their symptoms due to the nature of the lack of or the excess of thyroid hormone. Yeah. And, uh, and what people will notice, we'll obviously get into this a little bit later, but people will notice that there is such a broad range of symptoms and that can be a reason why a lot of people aren't testing or identifying what the actual problem is because there are such a, an array of symptoms. Absolutely. Um, And I think everybody assumes you're going to gain weight with hypothyroidism. And a lot of times in, you know, in conventional screening, if there isn't the weight gain, it kind of gets overlooked. But sometimes the the only symptom the patient has is depression. Yep. And they're on antidepressants and no other further investigations are done. Right. 
So speaking of how, speaking of evaluating the thyroid, lots of people who listen to me talk, hear me talk about different tests. So during like using blood, urine, saliva, but what's the best way that people should test their thyroid and what are we actually looking at? So I feel that blood is, is by far the most um, accurate when it comes to thyroid with other hormones, not so much, but for thyroid, you can get a really good workup through blood provided you're doing the test correctly and provided you're doing all the tests that need to be done. So not only just a TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, which is the general screening test used in convention, in the conventional world, you also need to see free T4, free T3, and then as well, um, any antibodies that your body might be producing uh, towards, towards the thyroid, which is a whole other area, this area of Hashimoto's, which is the autoimmune condition, so you have to rule that out. And then there's also a value called reverse T3 that uh, I find to be very um, useful information as well. Um, something with just a little tip about testing thyroid hormones, it should be a fasted test. You should not have coffee. You have to be careful of certain medications and supplements as well that will alter the value values. So you have to take all of those things into consideration to get a full picture. Yeah. And so I'm a patient and I tell you, my doctor tested my TSH and my T4 and I'm fine. How do you respond? So, and maybe your TSH and your T4 were fine. I mean, within the range, but I want to know if it's fasted. I want to know if you're taking a biotin supplement because that's going to alter it. And then I want to get the rest of the picture just to make sure because those two results can be rather deceiving if you're not getting the full picture. Yeah. And I think, um, well, you see it in practice and you see it in research, but with me for on a personal note, I remember, and you probably remember back when I was pregnant and I had my TSH tested. And remember in my first trimester, I had it tested and it was 3.98. And so for those who don't know, the range goes up to four. And so that's high on the range. And I I wasn't flagged or asked for further testing because it's within the range. So it's fine. Which Again, Um, especially in pregnancy, that really further screening should have been gone on there because of the miscarriage risk and everything else. Yes. So I was obviously in being in my profession, speaking to you, and I was nervous about that. And so I ended up running my T3, T4, and my antibodies, and they actually came up really good. Mm-hmm. So when you say TSH is deceiving, I, I would agree that it is deceiving, but I've also seen it in multiple patients, not even just looking at the research saying that it possibly doesn't correlate with the rest of the values actually seeing it in practice is actually is pretty crazy because then you don't know when when you would trust TSH as a as an accurate evaluation of the thyroid you know I I see that too and even on patients that we have on thyroid medication I'll see a TSH of 3.5 and then I see their T3 flagged high so it really Mm -hmm. yeah TSH to me on its own is is really not useful Yeah. And so I usually explain to patients when, when they have their thyroid labs done and they're saying, Oh yeah, my thyroid's fine. I usually tell them two things that I tell them that information that it may not be indicative of anything else that your thyroid is doing, but also it, it's not that we want it within the range. We want it in a certain part of that range. And so then we get into what's called subclinical thyroid issues. So talk a little bit about what range we want to see, what a subclinical thyroid issue is. So, and again, with this, with the subclinical, I don't even really, I don't even really use the TSH, but I will look at T4 and T3 values and um, I get T4 ranges 9 to 19 and T3, uh, what is it now? 3.2 to 
5.5 or 5.2, whatever it is. Um, I, if the patients are not flagged low, so their numbers are not out of that range, but they're in the very low end of that range, when you look at that paired with the symptom, because, you know, we sometimes get very lost in blood work and forget that there's a patient sitting in front of us. And if all of the values are just on the cusp of being flagged low or flagged high, whatever the case may be, but they're still experiencing all the symptoms of hypothyroidism, that's a subclinical hypothyroidism. You help, you still have all the symptoms. You're just, your numbers aren't flagged yet. Right. Right. And so they can still very much have symptoms and not need to be on Synthroid or not be prescribed Synthroid from their doctor. Right. So um, it's, it's that important that people understand that. Yeah, and there are things in the, in those early, the stages before you're actually flagged, that's where, you know, we can come in and do things to help support thyroid function and try to improve those values, you know, without medication at first. Yeah, and so for somebody who's listening and thinking, okay, do I have a thyroid issue? How would they know if they had a thyroid issue and what would their next steps be? So we've talked about testing, we've talked about some sort of presentation, but where does somebody start? Well, if you're starting with, I mean, if you're starting with your family doctor, um, you know, you go in and present your symptoms. Patients need to know that 99% of the time, it's only a TSH that you're going to get. Maybe a T4 if there's a history, but um, all of their guidelines say to just do TSH and not go any further. So this is an area where, you know, we can offer a lot more of a, a thorough investigation that likely is not going to be done. And that's just because th those are the guidelines that they follow and, and that's it. So if you really do feel that you might have something going on with your thyroid, seeking out um, an ND isn't a bad idea just to get a broader look. Yeah, for sure. And so when you mentioned the testing uh, early on, we were talking about T3 and T4. And so you briefly touched on what those were, but talk to me about the differences in, so if somebody, what's the point of getting T3, T4 and antibodies tested? Does that change the treatment? What sort of things are we looking for when we're comparing T3 to T4 in the, um, in the lab work? It, in from, from my perspective, the values themselves don't necessarily change the treatment, but it is good to know if, say, for instance, um, patients have lots of T4, but they don't seem to have a lot of T3. And in that case, that's because they're having a conversion issue. Uh, so there's nutrients that are involved in that conversion, or that T4 is getting converted into something called reverse T3 due to cortisol levels in the body. So that would give you an idea of other areas that you, other hormones you might have to address. If T4 and T3 are low, well, then they need to be supplemented um, one way or the other. And if the antibodies are high, that's an autoimmune condition. So now you've got to deal not only with the thyroid issue, but you also have to deal with the whole autoimmune picture, inflammation, gut stuff, all of that um, as well. So, you know, in order to, to get a really thorough treatment plan versus just bang, sticking a med in there, you really do need to see the whole picture to know what your all of the areas you're going to have to tap on to give the patient the best um, symptomatic relief. Yeah. And in my experience, I've actually seen quite a few patients who present with symptoms that I think might be a thyroid issue. Their doctor will run everything, uh, TSH, T3, T4, but not antibodies. And once we run antibodies, we find that Hashimoto's is the issue and is the true issue. And so do you find in your practice that when you have a patient, you can have their values look quote unquote normal and oftentimes actually pretty good from a TSH, T3, T4 perspective, but they can still have symptoms with just the antibodies? 
100%. A lot of the time, in fact, uh, I see Hashimoto's patients and the values look just fine, the, the TSH, T4, T3. However, the, the presence of the inflammation in the thyroid and the presence of the antibodies, the, simic, the symptoms mimic exactly the same as, as if those values were really out of whack. So that's why it's so important for us. But again, in, in, in conventional medicine, the antibody, the presence of the antibodies doesn't change their treatment protocol. So then for them, it, it's kind of like, well, why would I, why am I testing something that's not going to alter what I'm going to do? Yeah, exactly. And when you find, so when I find that a doctor will run antibodies, so some, some of my patients' doctors are really fantastic and will actually run the full mm-hmm. panel and everything else. But what they run more often than not is anti-TPO. Yeah. Do you find that anyone runs, uh, including myself, I don't usually run this, um, anti-thyroglobulin as my first step, I usually think of anti-TPO. And so do you find a lot of patients will have Hashimoto's with both antibodies or do you find it's most often TPO or both of them or what What do you see? I always run both because okay. I have seen one flagged, I've seen both flagged and I've seen you know one, one, one of each or both. And I do find that symptomatically, it doesn't make a difference. So I, I always okay. run them both. And from a fertility perspective, so just for those people who are uh, trying to get pregnant and they've had their TSH run and possibly their other hormones, but they haven't had antibodies run, uh, the connection between antibodies and fertility. But I've also talked to you about and, and seen the connection between actually hives and fertility and antibodies. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you see a lot? And is that something that you find fertility docs acknowledge or run very often? Uh, the find the fertility docs are good with the TSH. So for we talked about the range earlier, the fact that the range the, the top end of the range for TSH is four, so anything over that four is flagged for to indicate hypothyroidism. However, for fertility health, they uh, the fertility doctors like the TSH to be under two. So that's definitely something that, and I'm always you know on board with that too. That I I will give low dose medication to women trying to conceive whose TSH is over two. But um, the presence of the antibodies absolutely impacts the fertility, but I really don't see that done as commonly in the fertility world as I would, would like to see it done. Yeah, and sometimes I, I've had a patient that just presented with infertility and hives, and it yep. ended up being a, a thyroid issue after six years of trying to conceive. So uh, that's something to watch out for as well, is that the thyroid, like you mentioned before, because it is so involved in our metabolism of every single tissue, Mm -hmm. uh, it obviously is going to manifest in a number of ways. And it doesn't always, like you mentioned, fit the presentation that we think. We think constipation, overweight, and fatigue. And then we kind of stop there. So making sure that you're not... The hive picture I've seen a lot over the years and um, with no other symptoms, just uh, usually in the perimenopausal age group, random onset of hives, idiopathic urticaria, and it's mm-hmm. almost always Hashimoto's. Yeah, and I find that interesting that you say in the menopause group because uh, from the research I've looked at and from what I've actually seen in my short years of practice is that women tend to get or they're more vulnerable to Hashimoto's and if they are going to, if it is going to present at all, I find that it happens after they have babies and when they're going into menopause. Do you have any idea why that is or do you see this as well? Yeah, um, I do. So 
because the Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition, and I believe, I think it's 70, 75% of autoimmune patients are female. I can't remember the exact number, but a lot. Mm -hmm. The majority of people with autoimmune conditions are female. And that is because estrogen is an inflammatory hormone and testosterone is an anti-inflammatory hormone. So during times of hormonal shifting, so right after pregnancy or in the perimenopause period where estrogen will stay high and progesterone will start to drop off first, then you get an estrogen dominant picture and it almost is like that's what flicks the switch to 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 turn on the, the Hashimoto's. Yeah. And it makes sense if we compare it to any other autoimmune disease, it's like, what's that switch? It can be environmental, it can be viral, it can be hormonal. And so Mm -hmm. it makes sense that a thyroid, an autoimmune thyroid condition would happen during those more vulnerable times. And actually on that note, I find that I've actually had quite a few patients now who uh, will be in that postpartum. So I would say six months postpartum and they're suffering from either postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression. And a lot of this postpartum anxiety starts with one day I just had really bad palpitations and I felt like I couldn't breathe and I went to the hospital and I got, um, and I had an ECG and then I had pulmonary function tests and then I had whatever else, whatever other investigations they did, but they never looked at the thyroid. And I find that a lot of times, um, it can be actually mistaken for a postpartum anxiety that's prolonged. Uh, certainly there is postpartum anxiety and pers- postpartum depression that will be there as well. But the thyroid is a good thing to rule out and to make sure that we evaluate in that postpartum stage as well. Because I feel like uh, sometimes it can get almost brushed off as you're just suffering from postpartum depression or anxiety and no other tests have been done to ensure that other things have been ruled out. Absolutely, both thyroid and progesterone. And if you think about the fact that the thyroid actually controls or influences how much progesterone the body is able to make, if you have, let's say, a subclinical hypo or hypo hyperthyroidism paired with your low progesterone, paired with all your other postpartum factors, then of course it's going to create all these symptoms that, again, may often just be mistaken as simply postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety without looking at the underlying causes. Absolutely. And I think uh, this discussion here really highlights the importance of getting lab work when it is clinically necessary, because as you can see from all the things that we're touching on, everyone who's listening, that symptoms can be because of a number of reasons. All of our hormones, I always say, work in concert with each other. So if one's off, uh, it can make a whole slew of other things happen. And so that's the whole thing with naturopathic medicine is getting to the root cause and making sure that we're evaluating all of these different avenues because you can't you can't get a thyroid picture from a clinical intake. And so a lot of people will say, oh, I think I might have a thyroid issue. What should I take? And so what do you say to those people? Well, and like anything else that we do, um, yeah. we're not in the business of guessing. So right. if, if you think you have a thyroid issue, well, then let's, you know, let me, let me do a symptom evaluation. Let's put together a list of things that I want to see. Because again, there's so, like you say, there's so many hormones that influence each other, but there's also so many hormones that, that have similar symptoms in deficiencies, the low testosterone and low thyroid or low cortisol and low thyroid and everything impacts. So let's get a full picture. We're not going to treat anything because first of all, we've got to figure out exactly what the problem is. And second of all, there might be two or three hormones that are out of whack and we've got to deal with the, with the whole picture. So we're not going to start treating without that clinical information to back that up. Yeah. And from a thyroid perspective in particular, it actually can be quite dangerous to start just taking selenium or um, just giving yourself iodine. It can actually be really dangerous. So people need to 
be aware of that as well. So you don't want to go to the health food store. Specifically and iodine. Yes. Yes. So just making sure, again, not just not self-treating, but I, I always say specifically with the thyroid, things can get really dangerous. So you just need to make sure you know what's going on before you try and treat it, just like anything else. But I wanted to ask you a question about Hashimoto's and the antibodies. And so I don't actually don't really have any idea why this um, presents, but why do you think people with Hashimoto's who have, so obviously Hashimoto's is the presence of antibodies. Why do you think some people present with uh, thyroid values that look completely normal and others present with thyroid values that are off the charts? I think it's, it's a matter, it's just a matter of time. You know, if you've yeah. caught the Hashimoto's in its early stages, the antibodies are there, but they haven't had a chance to dest- destroy the thyroid gland, but at some point, inevitably they will. You know, and okay. so in that case, we can we can either watch and wait and see them elevated, but we have tools in our toolbox that can bring those thyro- those antibody values down, create less inflammation in the thyroid, in the thyroid, um, <laughs> yeah. and increase the likelihood of nodules and goiter and all that sort of thing. So um, you don't want to just leave them and wait. They eventually those numbers will be abnormal. It just it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and I think it would be interesting. If, and I think the problem is because it's not frequently tested, so we can't actually gauge what's been happening. So if someone who's been on Synthroid for years and years and years, you finally do a full panel and they have antibodies, we don't know if there was a time that, that they, like when they didn't, right? And how things change with respect to the antibodies. So I guess it's kind of hard, even from a research perspective, because it's not tested, we can't really get that research that shows the progression through time, which would be which would be just interesting to see. Cause I was just wondering if it had any, anything to do with um, people just having their thyroid was better at compensating for longer for some reason or another, or, um, or, or what that happened or if that progression always happened, you know what I mean? I think it's, it's likely that it will, I guess in certain yeah. people, depending on their lifestyle factors, you know, are they eating a really clean anti-inflammatory diet just by chance? And so they're offsetting those effects. I'm, you know, are they nutrient depleted? Do they have a good, you know, they take, get lots of nutrients from their diet and supplementation. I think there's a lot of factors in that, but I do think if you leave those antibodies unchecked for too long, at some point, the thyroid will start to dysfunction. Right. And so when it comes to thyroid treatment, um, there's obviously many different options. Like we said, from a naturopathic perspective, we talk about gut health, we talk about inflammation, specific nutrients for conversion, uh, dietary triggers. But let's talk specifically because uh, obviously as naturopathic doctors, part of our toolbox is desiccated thyroid. And so a lot of people don't even know what that is and why they should or shouldn't be on it or should or shouldn't consider it. And so Synthroid or Levothyroxine is the most common medication given for thyroid concerns. Let's just start there. What's this? What's it actually do? Okay. So Synthroid or Levothyroxine is a synthetic version of T4. So earlier we talked about T4 having to get converted into T3. Uh, Levothyroxine is a synthetic uh, T4. So when you give the patient the Synthroid, they then have to, their body has to recognize that medication and convert it into the active form T3. Now there is a synthetic version of T3 called Cytomel, which can be given concomitantly with the Synthroid. It isn't often used um, and it is tricky, I think, to maneuver the two of them together. So very often um, they're just using the Synthroid on its own, which in a lot of patients, if you do have conversion issues, I mean, if you were having conversion issues in the first place, 
with a synthetic hormone, it's even more difficult to uh, to convert. So sometimes, again, with patients being on the Synthroid, the lab values will will normalize, but the symptoms aren't always going away if the patient is not actively converting that Synthroid. And, then, and so why, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, why is it important to give T4 if it has to be converted, why wouldn't, people are probably thinking, why wouldn't they just give us T3 then? Like, why wouldn't they just give the cytomel at first? Good question. I don't know. I don't know. I've always wondered that. You're Because if you, if you think about somebody who has hypothyroidism, they're metabolically challenged to begin with. So a lot of their metabolic processes are not working in the way that they should be to put a, a drug into the body that then their body actually has to metabolize and change into something <laughs> else has never really made any sense to me. Mm-hmm. But that's What's the harm of giving cytomel? Um, it, it, you can give too much, and then you can throw the patient into a hyperthyroid state. So I think it's less hyperthyroidism is less likely with the Synthroid on its own than when you throw the cytomel in. Uh, and I think that's why they, it's just really not used all that much. I mean, I, I see some patients on it, absolutely, but not very often. Yeah, and so what I, I remember looking at research recently about the history of thyroid treatment and desiccated thyroid was in there and levothyroxine was in there. And it appeared as though desiccated thyroid was kind of the treatment of choice until a certain year. And for some reason, uh, I think it was due to consistency issues of the actual desiccated thyroid at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, the medical community just switched to the synthetic and they kind of never looked back. So Let's talk about what desiccated thyroid is now to this present day, because I feel like a lot of medical doctors who used to use it or used to hear of it and patients who might have heard about it haven't heard great things. And so let's talk about it kind of past and present and how it's different now. Okay. So there's actually two different ways a patient can take desiccated thyroid. They can take it compounded from a compounding pharmacy. So where the pharmacist actually physically puts the T4 and T3 into it, like makes it themselves. Or there is a commercial product available uh, by a company called Urfa. And, and then there's, there's Armour in the States, but I think we can only get Urfa here. I, when I first started the prescribing of the desiccated, was using the uh, commercial product. It was cheaper. It was more widely uh, available. Benefit companies were covering it more, uh, yada, yada. But I was seeing inconsistency and actually had one of the compounding pharmacists that I work with call the company and they basically said the same thing that, yeah, there are some inconsistencies and they don't really know how much T4, T3 was in it. So that was the last time I used that. And because that's a commercially made product, that is the one that the medical community would have been made aware of. They don't really know about the compounded, which is um, certainly completely consistent. I mean, maybe differing from pharmacy to pharmacy a little bit, but the numbers are consistent, you know, in a 90 milligram capsule of desiccated thyroid, we know exactly how much T4 and T3 you're getting. So I think that unfortunately, the commercial products um, gave it a bad name. And then nobody ever just just like, Oh, well, it's not it's not consistent. So we're gonna go back to Synthroid. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, because a lot of people feel a lot better when they are put on desiccated thyroid versus Synthroid. Um, And so are there any specific circumstances where someone should be taking one over the other? I think overall, if there's a conversion issue, absolutely. So if in initial blood work, 
um, before a patient was going to start on Synthroid, you know, T4, T4 was okay, but T3 was really low. Then because the desiccated thyroid has the T4 and T3 in it in the same ratio, that 4.1 to 1 ratio that they exist in the body, um, I think in that case, in Hashimoto's, we see the antibodies go down with the desiccated thyroid, which you don't see with the Synthroid, uh, which is really interesting. And so certainly, but I would say overall, in my years of doing this, I really haven't seen anybody that felt like they felt better on the Synthroid. I had one patient go back to Synthroid from desiccated because I think they had an allergy to it. Um, upset. But besides that, it really, in my opinion, symptomatically makes a bigger difference. And someone I was on Synthroid before and now I'm on desiccated thyroid and it was night and day as far as symptom symptoms went. Yeah. And when you go back to the allergy, I actually had a patient a while back who we suspected could have an allergy to the desiccated. And the pharmacist that I spoke with said it could come down to the fillers. Mm-hmm. And so they use, mm, I can't remember what the filler is that they, that they normally use. Can you remind me? Do you know? I don't know. It's not, it's not, cause it's not corn based. I know that. I can't remember. No, what it's, it's, not. Not. it's not, but different pharmacies. Is it use cellulose? Or? Cellulose. Yeah, that is what it is. Yeah. 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 So they, he said it was very, very unlikely, but not unheard of, uh, that somebody would have a reaction to cellulose. And he actually told me that Urfa or Armour Thyroid, uh, actually was, actually did have corn in it. Is that true as far as you know? Yes. Um, and I believe Synthroid has dairy in it. Does it not? Mm, okay, maybe yeah. I, I'm not I'm not aware of that. But the point being is that for people who have allergies or people, I mean, if we're looking at it from an autoimmune perspective, if someone has Hashimoto's and they're on Synthroid, let's say, mm. and say they have a, a dairy intolerance, and so now say dairy is what is actually in it, they're not reducing their antibodies and they could actually be adding in some more inflammation to the picture if they're sensitive to whatever other fillers are in that capsule too. So absolutely, yeah, people need to be aware of that. So I think when we're looking at uh, armor or Urfa versus a compounded, we do also have to look at it from a filler perspective. Corn is something that is very inflammatory and the higher quality supplements and products actually don't include corn for this reason. Absolutely. So I think that's another another part to look at as well. Um, I was going to, oh, and there was that, that study, I believe that looked at Synthroid versus desiccated and just based on asking patients how they felt a lot more patients felt better on desiccated versus as versus Synthroid. Yep, absolutely. So, so I think there is a lot of merit in just asking the patient how they feel, which unfortunately isn't really done. No. And, you know, if you think of it, though, from an MD's perspective, you've got a patient, they present with hypothyroidism, you give them the Synthroid, you run the numbers, the numbers look fine. Well, what now? Their hands are tied. Whether or not the patient feels better, there really isn't anything else where they're going to say, well, you know, you're tired because life is busy and maybe you're not sleeping well enough. They don't they don't have another tool. So, you know, in some in some ways, I kind of feel badly for them because they want to make you feel better. They've given you the only drug that they have in their toolbox for it. If you don't feel better and your numbers look within the range or fine, according to them, there's nothing more they can do. Yeah, no, I know. And you look at it from a perspective. I know a lot of patients feel like they have to 
uh, go to alternative medicine over conventional. And I don't ever look at it that way. I look at it as we want to work together because we're all on team patient, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding, especially in Ontario specifically, that the medical doctors are under a lot of constraints, time, um, resources, all of those sorts of things. And so if they don't have the tool to treat you and they don't have the time to go through, okay, well, could it be stress? And how's your period? And let's look at your digestion. And how are you sleeping? They truly don't have the time to do that. We are an overwhelmed system on a good day. So I think that people need to take that into consideration as well. There are other options out there, but I think it's, it is, it's a tricky system in, in terms of like, from that perspective. I think if both, if everybody was under the understanding that the conventional medical world is there to deal with sick people, and there are a lot of very sick people in the world, they are really not concerned with people who just aren't feeling very well, because they don't have enough time for that. Whereas for us, the really sick people we send back to the conventional world. I mean, there's always things that we can do to, you know, help with yep. with lifestyle factors and whatever, but like a really sick person, I'm sending them out of here. Whereas yep. my practice is based on people that just don't really feel well. Yep. So we each have our place. Um, absolutely. And so, okay, let's, let's hone in on pregnancy. I mentioned before my personal values. Um, and so when we're looking at pregnancy, you mentioned, and I know, and a lot of people know that your TSH should be around two for mm-hmm. fertility purposes. Right. You also mentioned that uh, Synthroid doesn't do anything for antibodies. And right. so if we're trying to get our TSH around two, but uh, is it true that the most common hypothyroidism is in fact Hashimoto's? Yes. Yeah. The, the majority so, of hypothyroid cases are Hashimoto's. So let's just assume that somebody who wants to get pregnant has their TSH under two, but they have antibodies. And so what do, what do they do then? Right. How do they, how are they treated? Well, first off, you start with the, uh, like a, a typical autoimmune protocol, which was dealing with the gut stuff, inflammation, diet, food intolerances, all that stuff. If you're not seeing um, an improvement in those antibodies, then a low dose desiccated thyroid is introduced to see if that can then reduce the antibodies a bit more along with all of the other things. But I don't start with it unless, I mean, unless their thyroid's like crazy out of whack. If the antibodies are just a little bit high, certainly I'll start with the the lifestyle and, and supplementation factors first. And then if that isn't getting us to where we want to go, then add in a little bit of a low, a low dose. And the other thing that you you mentioned before, but I want to reiterate when it comes to pregnancy, if you are somebody who is on Synthroid or, or desiccated thyroid, when you are trying to get pregnant and we're trying to see these values, make sure that you're getting your lab work done fasted in the morning before taking your thyroid medication. Because yeah. I've seen it, you've seen it, where we have values that look great and other like someone on synthroid someone whatever they're on values look great but they can't get pregnant and we're kind of wondering okay well all of the other things are in place so I don't really understand what's going on uh look into it a little bit further and realize that they're actually taking their medication right before they get their blood work done a lot of people don't really think about it because that's just kind of part of their routine so (laughs) something to note make sure you're not taking your medication because it could just be covering up something that's actually still pretty pretty wildly imbalanced. 
Yeah, I always use the, so, uh, the example that if I was going to test your B12 levels and you took a B12 supplement two hours before I tested it, would we ever know what your real B12 levels were? We wouldn't. And so it's exactly the same thing. If you take it the night before, that's one thing, but you're not going to take it an hour or two before your blood work because it is going to absolutely skew the, the blood work. And speaking of time of day, when do you recommend that people take their desiccated thyroid? It really doesn't matter morning or night. What's most important is that is at least two hours away from food. Three is ideal. Um, anything containing calcium or iron will really prevent the absorption of the medication. So time of day isn't really as important as being able to, to get that window away from food. Yeah. And I mean, thyroid hormone is supposed to energize you, right? And it's so funny because my my mom used to be on Synthroid and she would always take hers at night and it was kind of like, oh, why'd you take it at night? I don't know. It wasn't really doing anything for her anyways. She wasn't feeling right. she right. wasn't feeling good no like she wouldn't wasn't feeling good regardless. So I guess it didn't really make a difference. But from her perspective personally, since she's been on desiccated thyroid, she's noticed her hair is a lot thicker. Mm-hmm. Like she just thought for her whole life that she, I just have thin hair that always falls out. Like that's just my life. And so there are little things that people don't realize aren't normal because they are their normal. Absolutely. And you live with them for so long that you just assume that this is the way it is. Yeah, exactly. And you also realize when someone does a, you do an initial intake and it's an hour long by the end, people are like, Oh my God, I have so many problems. But really (laughs) all the, all the problems are often one, two or three things that are kind of, you know what I mean? Like they're not, you don't have 25 different separate individual problems, no. No. <laughs> but a lot of people don't realize they're like, Oh my God, I've never actually taken the time to talk about all of these things. And, and so, and, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. I was just going to say, and that's that point, you know, when you, we do, I mean, we we're fortunate that we have an hour with a patient, but in a lot of really busy medical practices, the, the family doctor will say you're only allowed one or two complaints at a time. And if you look, if you need to see those 20 different things to direct you into your, what your, your di- the diagnosis that you need to do, sometimes that stuff does get missed because they don't have, um, they don't have the chance to spend an hour and ask the 8 million questions that we do in a first visit. Absolutely. And I think even from a personal perspective that I have medical training and sometimes when I go into the doctor, I feel rushed like, okay, let's just, what's the most important thing? Let me just, because she doesn't have time or, or whatever else you just, you pick and you pick what you, what you're going to die from today. And the the rest (laughs) can wait. (laughs) So I think that's a lot of people get, a lot of people get wrapped up in that. Like even, I mean, even in my postpartum visits on a completely other note, I felt like I already had so many questions about my baby that I've never had a child before in my whole life. And they say, Oh, and how are you? And you're kind of like, I'm fine. And what, but what about this? Right. (laughs) So, so like, it's fine that your perineum is like, who knows what, but nobody cares because, (laughs) because you like need to know what's going on with your baby's butt rash, you know? So, right. I think that there's a lot of areas where as women, I think in particular, we kind of get pushed. I think we're used to just being like, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's okay. I have this always. It's fine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yep. So 
people I get used to that. Especially when you have kids and, 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 and whatnot, like you, they become your primary focus. And I'm sure you've seen it time and time again in women that have just completely neglected themselves. They come in here 15 minutes in, they're a puddle of tears because yeah. they felt so bad for so long and have just done nothing about it. And now they feel like it's hopeless. And those are my favorite kind of patients because when you do make a difference, it's like life changing for them. And yeah. they can, it, when it comes to these, these hormones, like they can be really, truly life-changing. Yeah, it, I know it is. And it, it's one of the reasons why we do what we do because you do help people in such a dramatic way. And it's, it's really such a good feeling, especially when you have patients who, I mean, I can see, I just have a five month old and I can see it. You put, you put yourself kind of behind and behind and all of a sudden I'll be going through a day and be like, I haven't had a sip of water. Like what's wrong with me? Right. So you, it's easy. It's really easy to get behind. It's really hard to do the work. And even being a naturopath myself, I'm like forgetting to drink water some days, some days I'm not moving. And, and obviously for the first few months of having a baby, that's fine. But I feel like you get into habits and patterns and routines. And then all of a sudden your kids are 15 and you've been constipated for 15 years and (laughs) you haven't done anything about it. So and yeah, and then that leads to obviously other issues because if you have gut issues, then you have you can have thyroid issues and you have inflammation and autoimmune and everything kind of goes together. Nothing is in isolation. Right. So that's the that's the rant on that. But that's also why I've always wondered uh, why there's so many different specialties in medicine. I understand it from a logistics perspective, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you really think of how the human body works. No, and I, especially with autoimmune conditions, and I, I, I don't know how many times a week I say this, the way that autoimmune, autoimmunity is dealt with, well, in Ontario specifically, because I've never practiced anywhere else, so I don't know, but in Ontario, if you have an autoimmune condition, you are sent to the person that deals with the body part that is being affected by the autoimmune condition, which is so strange to me, as opposed, <laughs> right, as opposed to looking at autoimmunity, like having an autoimmune specialist, because I'll tell you right now, you got one autoimmune condition, you got more than one of them, you know, they're, they're, oh, they're, absolutely. It's one disease process, it's not 35. And yeah. so, you know, if, if you had eczema on your head and on your foot, you wouldn't send them to two different specialists. And that's, that's always been kind of confusing to me, especially with autoimmunity. Yeah, it's yeah. and because there's not really a lot like like I said, you get you said you get spent, sent to the specialist who is going to whatever body parts affected the most. Like there's obviously a lot of other things, but it makes it really difficult to find a complete treatment because if you're not looking at everything, it can't can never be complete. So that's kind of a a side rant. But let's talk specifically about pregnancy and why the thyroid is important in pregnancy. So the thyroid is important in the conception um, part of things because it does control progesterone and progesterone is really important in being able to conceive in the first place. Then you need adequate thyroid hormone in order to maintain that pregnancy specifically in the first trimester. So in that first 12 weeks of a pregnancy where we all know the risk of, of, of miscarriage and whatnot is much higher than it is as once you get over that 12 week hump, um, the having not just okay thyroid hormone, but like really good adequate amounts of thyroid hormone is important in helping you to also, um, you know, one of the factors that can contribute to miscarriage if it is not treated. Yeah. And so going back to that number of two, that magic number of like under two or around two, do you think, and I know the answer to this, but I want to talk about it. (laughs) Do you think that TSH is enough to test in pregnant women? 
Oh no, 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 no. And especially because, I mean, especially in the first three months of pregnancy, the body's doing really weird and wacky things. Blood volume is increasing. There's all these uh, crazy things that are happening. And I don't want, to be honest with you, I don't think just a TSH is valuable for anybody at any time ever, but specifically when you're looking at um, a pregnant woman, because you want to see those antibodies as well, we discussed that earlier, they can, they can cause problems too. So um, doing the full, the full panel is really important. And in the first trimester, I do it uh, once a month just to uh, eye on it. Yeah. And I mean, do you have any idea why my values were how they were at the beginning? And then they kind of normalized and leveled out. I think when I, I tested again, eight weeks after, so I was at 3.98 in, I think I was like five or six weeks pregnant. And then I tested, I think eight weeks later or four, I forget what it was specifically, but it actually went my TSH went down to 1.9 and everything was still normal and fine and actually pretty good the whole time. Do you have any idea why that is or? I think maybe in the early stages of pregnancy, there's an increased metabolic demand, you know, cause you're like growing a human, no big deal. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, I think at that point there's a bit of a strain put on the whole, all of the metabolic functions in the body. So maybe at that point, the pituitary senses that there is an adequate uh, thyroid hormone for, um, for what's going on. And then as you know, the machine gets going and, and the body kind of catches up then things normalize and it's all good. I mean, I'm speculating, but I have to assume it's something along those lines, some sort of chemical or metabolic changes happening in the early stages of pregnancy. Right. And I wonder if that has any sort of predictive value of future thyroid issues. Cause I do have a family history, obviously of thyroid issues. And so I, after seeing that value, I was kind of like, okay, my other numbers are fine, but what does this mean in the future? Am I more prone to a hypothyroidism state or Hashimoto's or anything like that? It's, it would be interesting to see. And I do see that. I see women. Um, I've had women who've said they were put on thyroid meds in pregnancy and then taken off afterwards, never retested because they said they were fine. And I'm yeah. like, I don't like, and maybe, maybe the thyroid condition goes away, but certainly if you had during your pregnancy, you had, you had frank hypothyroidism or what you had, which was in subclinical, um, it, it seems like there is a chance that that's going to reoccur later in life. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. Um, <laughs> when you put somebody on, whether it's, well, we put people on desiccated, but if someone's on desiccated or Synthroid, is this a life sentence? Does this mean we have to be on it for life? And why can some people come off? And I mean, this might be speculation, but why do you think some people can come off and others can't? I don't, I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I do think that for the majority of people that end up on the medication, it is a lifelong thing because the longer you're on either or your own natural thyroid production will continue to decline. You know, it's like when you're on birth control and your ovaries stop making the hormones that they were making. It's the same thing with, with being on thyroid meds, whichever one you're on. So in most patients, they have to be on it. However, there is the odd one that goes off and things almost seem to normalize. And to be honest with you, I really don't know why that is. Yeah. And I was actually thinking about that the other day. Do you think that, I know there's a big connection between thyroid and obviously progesterone you've mentioned, but there's also the connection between the thyroid and the adrenal gland Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously gut health and inflammation. And so if someone is if somebody is basically like keeping everything tight in every area of life, if adrenals are treated, if the gut's treated, I mean, perfect scenario, everything's great, diet's amazing, exercise, all of those things. Do you think that someone can reverse a thyroid issue and it stays like that? Or do you not find that that's the case? I find in the early subclinical stages, yes. I think when it gets too far, 
I'm going to say no. Now, obviously, those factors are going to be important regardless of anything. And it's going to minimize the amount of medication you're going to have to take. It's going to minimize, you know, there's all the other sides to that. But I find if somebody, like if somebody has a TSH of 27, you know, like you're not, you're not turning that around with diet and exercise. Now you get get them on a low dose med and you, you incorporate all the other factors and then hopefully they don't have to end up, you know, with, with 10 dose increases. But at that point, it's, it's too far gone. You have to treat it. Right. And also people need to understand that there's nothing wrong with being on medication when it is indicated. Absolutely. So a lot of people think that naturopathic doctors are against medication. And not only is that not true, but oftentimes we'll be asking for medication in certain, in certain circumstances. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of medication that I don't think is necessary. Things like PPIs, but I think that depends. Also, if somebody has Barrett's esophagus, then maybe that PPI is needed. I don't know, right? So right. there is there is a place and a, t- a time and a place for it. And I think that thyroid, whether we use desiccated thyroid or synthroid, whatever kind of helps the patient the most get into where they want to be is what you want to use. But when it comes to pregnancy, is desiccated thyroid safe? Absolutely. No difference um, on staying on the Synthroid or the desiccated through th- through pregnancy. If your doctor had you on Synthroid, they would, of course, not pull you off that in pregnancy. Um, and the desiccated is exactly the same. I have had some patients say they get kind of worried about being on the desiccated and they want to switch early in pregnancy. Like they want to go back on Synthroid just because they're nervous and, you know, I highly uh, suggest against that switching one or the other. So I really think that, you know, in that first trimester, the medication that you're on, you know, just let that be right now, but cause you don't want to yeah. make any major shifts in anything specifically thyroid with how connected it is to miscarriage risk. So yes, to answer your question, it's hundred percent safe. Um, but either, or I wouldn't be switching from one to the other in those first, in that first trimester at all. Right. Similar to how you wouldn't switch antidepressants or um, any anxiety medications during pregnancy either, because they don't want you to be changing anything. But there was that study which talks about uh, desiccated, sorry, didn't talk about desiccated thyroid, talked about uh, levothyroxine and looked at miscarriage risk and found that it didn't impact miscarriage risk. Am I correct in saying that? That... No, right. Yes. But again, I know that's tricky though. It it didn't seem to impact it, but then again, is taking a patient off of that medication, well, not that we can take them off, but if they choose to go off and putting them on desiccated, is does is that going to impact miscarriage risk? And nobody we're never gonna know that because nobody's ever gonna do a study on that. Right. right. And so in these patients, so say you are a patient with a thyroid condition, you're on Synthroid, you get pregnant, you have a miscarriage. Is a good next step to go and possibly seek out desiccated thyroid before that next pregnancy? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Yeah. So it, just making sure that you are whatever position you are in life in terms of whether you're pregnant, not pregnant, menopause, basically it is important in any of those stages to make sure that you're seeking out the information that you need so you can make the choices that are right for you with your health. And that goes for thyroid and everything else. Absolutely. And at, and the, so, at the end of the day, we're just a resource. You know, we have our opinions on, on, on Synthroid versus desiccated. And, and that's, that's, that's our opinions. And very often the family doctor is going to have a different opinion, but you have to use us as two resources. I'll give you the information that I know. They're going to give you the information that they know. And then you as the patient 
have to be willing to to use those resources and make an educated, informed decision for yourself based on that information. Yeah. And I find that sometimes people almost want you to just tell them what to do. And you have to really just be, I'm just telling you this information. You have to make the decision that that works for you at the end of the day. And so we talked about subclinical thyroid, but and we talked about it. Sorry, we talked about uh, preg in pregnancy. If someone had uh, Hashimoto's, giving them a low dose desiccated may be a good option. Mm-hmm. If someone has subclinical, so none of their levels are flagged at all, and they don't have Hashimoto's, would you or or they do? Would you treat them with desiccated without any of these levels flagged, possibly with or without antibodies? Depends on the history. Um, if they had multiple miscarriages, um, that sort of picture, maybe. Um, okay. Yeah, but again, I'd want to be in really close contact with either the OB or the midwife, um, whatever they're using, just because, you know, in like I said, in those early stages of pregnancy, you really want to be careful. Um, but you certainly would want to do all the other things that you can do lifestyle-wise and, and diet-wise to deal with the antibodies. So the answer to that question is maybe depending on the history and uh, the opinions of their particular other healthcare providers that are monitoring the pregnancy. And what about someone who's not pregnant? So with antibodies, but nothing else flagged? Or nothing flagged, but subclinical? I don't start there. Um, So I always start with, you know, nutrients lifestyle, all the things that we need to do. Um, and then from there, depending on symptomatically, we can at some point add in a low dose desiccated, but when it's just sub subclinical, I don't always start there. Okay. Unless so I, it's a conception thing or, you know, whatever there's, there's other, yeah. other factors. Right. And so actually, uh, something has been brought to my attention with respect to desiccated thyroid is, uh, the ability to purchase it online from Thailand and, get it brought here and take it. So just talk to people about why that's a good or bad idea. And just, yeah, why? (laughs) I'm going to say safe to say that purchasing any pharmaceutical online from Thailand and having it shipped here is probably not a good idea. Um, That's really dangerous. And you can, uh, thyroid medication is not without side effects. If not dosed appropriately, you can put yourself into something called a thyroid storm, which is very dangerous. Um, and like could potentially be fatal if you had an underlying arrhythmia or something. So you don't want to be dosing yourself with thyroid medication that you a don't know that you need and b don't actually know what how much is in it or you know what else is in it or yeah bad just absolutely just wrong bad yeah 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 exactly and it is extremely <laughs> dangerous and I think that in we live in a time where. Uh, we can get a lot of information on the internet, which is amazing. We do need to worry about where we are getting our information from and sourcing it appropriately. And I think that with a lot of, there's a lot of educators on Instagram. I I do a lot of videos on Instagram, but anyone who, I, I will just kind of blanket this statement, is anyone who is offering treatment without knowing you is not mm-hmm. a credible source because mm-hmm. it's not something you can do. It's truly not. Um, we have regulations that uh, allow us to talk about certain things and not others. And that's fine. That's for the safety of the public. But I think even if the regulations weren't in place, there isn't a situation where I would be able to give someone treatment without knowing them. Right. So right. I don't no think, 
yeah, it doesn't make sense in any sort of, even it's a, whether it's a regulation or not. So if you have someone who is able to say that you need this product and you need to dose it like this, run. Because unless they have your patient history, your recent blood values, your all these sorts of things that we gather in an appointment and we get from a release of records and we do with testing, you need all this information to make a treatment plan. So if somebody is offering that information, because I've seen it on Instagram, especially with the thyroid, I've seen an Instagram account where they actually give dosage for this product that you can get from. Oh my goodness. Really? Yeah. Uh. So this person in particular is, I actually look to see kind of what the qualifications are and they are a person who has Hashimoto's themselves. That's it. So yeah. So your Hashimoto's is not the same as your friend's Hashimoto's. So everyone is very different. Um, so I just wanted to kind of note that please do not buy your own stuff online. You can buy, don't buy medication online. You can buy whatever, whatever you want. Don't buy medication. <laughs> um, okay. Please don't do that. Yep. <laughs> just, just please don't do it. I mean, when you get like a, when you, when you buy like an Instagram fail product and it comes <laughs> and it's not, it's not what you expected it to look like. I'm just thinking of yeah. a celebrity I follow on Instagram and she got like a dress and it's, it's so funny, but <laughs> anyways, you don't want that same thing with medication because like a dress, like it's fine. You can just, throw it out <laughs> medication right. you don't know what you're taking so right anyways. I could actually tell you so yeah 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 low-key so <laughs> with so last question I'm gonna say about thyroid what does if you were dosing obviously you're not going to give a specific dose but what is the dosing kind of regime follow-up testing like what does that look like with a patient who is on desiccated thyroid so we get baseline blood work. If there's a thyroid issue that needs to be treated, then we figure out the starting dose. And again, my starting dose is based on that particular patient's values, depending on how low they are, then we'll determine where I start. And then at that point from there, uh, we give the patient two months supply and retest those blood values again, fasted in the morning before taking medication at the six week mark. And from there, look at the values, talk about how they're feeling. And we continue to do this until we get the patient to the dose where the numbers look good, they're in the, the right part of the range, and the patient feels good. That's the that's how it goes there. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it was a fun conversation. I hopefully people get a lot of good information from this. Uh, talk about where people can find you, contact you, whatever else. Um, so on Facebook, I've got my page elements, naturopathic and wellness center, uh, website, uh, elements, nwc.com. And, um, yeah, there's links there for online booking and to contact us for, you know, a meet and greet just to find out a little bit more about what we do. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Michelle. And thank you everyone else. I'll put all that information in the show notes so you can head there if you are interested and we'll talk next time. Thanks. Take care.